Second Samuel 13, verse number 1. It says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister. His name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So the writer begins the story by telling us about this lovesick young man named Amnon. Tamar was Amnon's half-sister. And this is shocking because incest was just as forbidden then as it is today. And this young lady was not only a virgin, she was a daughter of the king. Verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Now, so far, this reads almost like a foolish prank that's being cooked up between two teenage cousins Of course, this is far more serious than they realize. And this is a good time, I think, to offer some practical encouragement. So if you're dealing with some kind of sexual temptation, um, which is Amnon's problem here, right? I want you to notice the emphasis that the writer puts on the eyes and the hands in this story. Notice he says... Prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. And he's going to repeat a couple of things like this. And I want you to notice that that sounds an awful lot like something that Jesus said about sin. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off, right? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin... Gouge it out. For why? It is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And you know what sin Jesus was talking about when he said that in context? He was talking about sexual sin, specifically adultery. So the message is quit playing with fire. Right? And and we're talking about radical dissection. Radical change. So if you can't handle social media, get off social media. If you can't handle a smartphone, get a dumb phone. If you don't have accountability, get some accountability. Right? These are the types of things um, that uh, that we would that I would give you as an encouragement. And so no one thinks that they're capable of serious sin until it happens. And that's why it's so dangerous and why it's so easy to fall prey. So verse 6, Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And the king came to see him. 
when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight. There is again, in my sight, that I may eat from her hand again. Verse 7. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. And so Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes she had made, brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. And you can see this is becoming more and more dangerous. And in many ways, this story is sort of an allegory for sin in general. It always seems to start small in our eyes and then escalates from there, right? And this is especially, I think, true sexual sin. The Bible talks about it a lot. And we cannot trust ourselves to do the right thing in the wrong circumstances. It's kind of a common message, a common proverb, right? Don't put yourself in the path of a fool. Don't put yourself somewhere where you're bound to fail, especially when it comes to lust. And we need to talk about it. In fact, the Bible talks about, as I said, sex and sexual temptation far more than the church typically does, which is part of our problem. And as a pastor, I am guilty of not talking about it enough as well because it's awkward, right? But we need to be clear about what the Bible teaches. If we're not, if we're not equipping one another as fellow Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ, what's going to happen is our kids are going to get all their information from the world. And the world has a very different perspective on this topic. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes are not from the Father, but from the world. In other words, our lust as we experience it as human beings in sin is a distortion of God's gift. And, and really, if you study kind of the whole Bible's perspective on the topic of sex, sex is meant to be given to us as a gift. It is an amazing gift in the right context, but it is a gift that can also be very destructive in the wrong context. In our house, we have, uh, as many of you do, a fireplace. And in the winter, we burn wood safely in the brick fireplace. And the smoke goes up the chimney and the fire burns and it's warm and it's beautiful and it warms our living room, right? It's beautiful, it's pleasant. But what happens if I start a fire a few feet away in the middle of the living room floor? All of a sudden it's not so beautiful, it's not so safe, right? We're calling the fire department and we are in danger. A fire in the wrong place is destructive. 
And I think the Bible's teaching about sexual sin is very similar to that. In the right context, it's a gift. In the wrong context, it is very, very dangerous. And the fire that's burning in Amnon is burning in the wrong place. Verse 11. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come and lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Now, I need to tell you that in Hebrew, this is not the typical term to describe sex. He did not lay with her as it reads in English. Instead, he laid her, which in Hebrew is a very crass way of describing what happened. Ralph Davis, uh, one commentary, describes the action by Amnon and the way that Tamar responds to it. She's describing it as flagrant godlessness. So this whole idea of the outrageous thing that he's doing, that is flagrant godlessness. Tamar is pleading with her brother to consider the consequences of his actions. And frankly, I am amazed at her wisdom and grace in the middle of such a traumatic situation, right? She's not only thinking of herself. She's clearly thinking also about the consequences for her brother. She suggests that David might even let them get married, even though that was technically forbidden by the law. And so I read this, and as tragic as this story is, she's just this, this beautiful example of a godly woman, even in the midst of trauma. And yet Amnon did not listen. He was consumed by his sin. And then verse 15 says this, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. That's only two words in Hebrew. He literally says, up, out. That's it. And I think the writer is very intentionally showing us, he uses this word love over and over again, but I really think what the writer is trying to say is that Amnon's lust was never actually love. He's using it almost to mock whatever this was that Amnon was feeling. And the truth is our world has always confused the two, has it not? Lust and love, right? Being physically attracted to someone is not love. Love is commitment and sacrifice. And what Amnon did to his sister was the opposite of love. It was an act of hatred. It was an act of violence. 
And obviously this is worse because it was clearly non-consensual, right? But the Bible actually makes the case, and this is important. The Bible actually makes the case that any and all, okay, I want you to hear me on this. Any and all sexual activity outside the context of marriage between a man and a woman is actually closer to hatred than love. Now, the world doesn't think about it that way. But the Bible clearly describes it in that way. It's moving the fire outside the fireplace. There are always negative consequences when you're talking about sex without covenant commitment. Always. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 6 says. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And you can clearly see this in Amnon, right? The object of his lust quickly becomes the object of his hatred. And what does that show us? That shows us this is powerful stuff, right? For sex to impact relationships the way it does. It's it's not just a physical act. The Bible talks about it as if there is all this emotional and spiritual intimacy attached to it. It is tied to the covenant bonds of the way we think about marriage in the Bible. And it's not the way the world talks about it, right? And our world actually sends mixed signals about this topic. On the one hand, our culture wants us to believe that sex is no big deal as long as it's consensual, right? As long as whoever's involved is okay with it, then it's no big deal. But here's the crazy thing. If an alien from another planet visited Earth, one of the first things they would notice is that our world is absolutely obsessed with sex. Absolutely obsessed with it. And that it's having greater consequences than the world wants us to believe. And so which is it? Is it no big deal or is it the biggest deal? It's hard to tell. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. She said to him, No, my brother, for this this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. He would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now Tamar, again, this example of a godly young woman, she's trying to accept the reality. And this is important. This is is easy to miss in the story, but it's, it's, it's a valuable insight. She is trying to accept the reality that sex represents covenant union. She is actually saying to him that she's willing to stay with this man and marry the man that just raped her because her theology of sex and marriage demands it. 
And that blows my mind, to be honest with you. But in her mind, it was a greater evil to be violated and then cast aside. But that's exactly what Amnon does. And look at what he says. And again, the English, as bad as that is, the English actually misses it. It's actually worse. In Hebrew, he doesn't even say woman. He says, literally, get this thing out of my sight. Verse 18. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. And so his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. The writer clearly wants us to hate this man's sin. I mean, right? There are a few stories in the Old Testament, and there are some bad ones. We've looked at them, right? But there are a few stories that evoke emotion as much as this one does. We are supposed to feel just this utter repulsiveness. He is heartless. And it it should probably make us angrier than it actually does, numbed as we are by our own sinfulness and our own culture. But that's kind of the problem. We are quick to think that we would never do something like this. And I want to say to you, maybe not exactly like this, but be careful of casting that first stone. Watch what happens next. Verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. And we're going to pause here. Verse 21 is crucial to understanding the significance of this story in redemptive history. I want to try to summarize. We're not going to read the rest of the chapter, but I want to summarize what happens next. Okay, here it is. Are you ready? David does nothing. He's angry. He's very angry, but he does nothing. Absalom waits two years to see if David's going to do anything about it. And David does nothing. And finally, Absalom decides to kill his brother Amnon himself, and then he runs away. And again, David hears about this, and he's angry, and he mourns the situation, but again, David does nothing. Eventually, Joab convinces David to let Absalom return to Jerusalem. 
But by then the damage has already been done. And what happens next, and we'll consider this over the next several weeks, is it begins this lengthy feud between David and Absalom. And if you remember, what did God say to David after he committed adultery and murder? Right? So David committed adultery with Bathsheba, then he murdered her husband. And God said what? He said, the sword will not depart from your house, David. Now, there's a lot of speculations in the commentaries about why David did nothing. But clearly, it's a failure of leadership, if, if nothing else, right? David was the king. His son raped his daughter, right? Doing nothing, wrong decision. Now, some have said, well, Amnon was probably the oldest son. He was probably the first in line to the throne. Maybe that's why David lets him off the hook. Others suggest, well, maybe this sin hit a little too close to home for David. Right? Um, how can I punish my son for something that I'm basically publicly guilty of myself? And guys, this is why sin is so destructive. It spreads like a forest fire. It is true, God had forgiven David. David had genuinely repented of his sin, and yet his sin is still having consequences. It's still begetting sin. Our failures are never isolated. They are never innocent or small. It is easier for us to think of them that way, to think that our sins are small or that they only affect us or I'm the only one that saw that or I'm the only one that knows about this or it's just me and this person and nobody else knows. Nobody else is concerned with it, right? Why do we do that? Because we don't want to feel the shame. It's easier to make it small. It's easier for our world to act like sex is no big deal. When we know, we all know it is. And that's the question on Tamar's lips as she walks away, violated and cast aside like a dirty towel. What will I do with my shame? The Bible says she even puts ashes on her, set, on her head. Ashes, of course, are the Bible's symbol of the shame that we carry with us. Do you know the significance of that? I mean, what are ashes? What are ashes? Ashes are the only thing left after fire has consumed and choked the life out of something. It's all that's left. And some of us are carrying a lot of ashes. What will we do with our shame? What will we do with our shame? We who live in a sexually explicit culture. What will we do with our shame when not a single person in this room will leave this world unburned by sexual sin of some kind. Not one of us. 
What do we do with our shame? Now, of course, you know, you know where I'm going with it. The answer is Jesus, right? We give our shame to Jesus. But I want you to pay close attention because this story highlights something about the gospel in particular that that is so striking. We always talk about the gospel, and I always tell you it's got it's got like bad news and then good news, right? There's bad news first. You're a sinner, you deserve judgment, right? And then God comes along and answers it in Christ with forgiveness and repentance and adoption, all this, right? But listen closely. When when God said to David, the sword will never depart from your house, do you understand that that was actually both a curse and a promise of blessing? The sword would pass down the family tree of David, wreaking havoc for generations. There would not be peace. But it would also pass down that family tree of David until it was given to the son of David, the Messiah. And ultimately, do you understand that that's what the gospel is? The sword falling upon the Son of God. Jesus Christ would endure the violence that we deserved on the cross so that our shame could be erased. I just don't think a human wrote that story. I'm sorry. It's just too... It's too baffling to me how the Bible ties together through all these crazy stories and there's all these little threads of the gospel running through them. And I want you to listen to the promise that was given hundreds of years later to the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them. A beautiful headdress instead of what? Ashes. And then listen to this. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. That's good news for Tamar. It's good news for any of us who are feeling the weight of shame and guilt this morning because of past or present sin. There is forgiveness. whether you were the oppressor or the oppressed. 
you were Tamar Amnon. There is forgiveness. In Christ, we are so much more than our failures. We are so much more than what we've done or what's been done to us. And so Jesus would say to us, flee from our sexual sin, flee from whatever sin, and run to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I'm certain that for many in this room, this sermon has evoked a lot of emotions, perhaps even drug up some trauma. And Lord, if that's the case, I pray that you'd be gracious to bind up those hearts, to comfort those who mourn. Romans says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In many ways, sexual sin is the worst in terms of consequences and the baggage that we carry. It is not beyond your grace. Forgive us for the sins we've committed. Forgive us from, in our shame, refusing to believe that you can correct it. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see Jesus and to rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.